Right, well, this morning we're back in the book of Ezra, Ezra 5 and 6. We're going to look at both chapters this morning, Ezra 5 and 6. We're going to talk about going from apathy to action. And I just want to remind you one more time about the gist of Ezra. Ezra is all about coming back to God after a time in the wilderness. Remember, the people of Israel were in Babylon for 70 years, and they come back. And Ezra is written to show how they were restored to faithfulness toward God and how people from any generation, including people living in 2019, can be restored to God as well. So last week we talked about some obstacles on the road to renewal. When you go back into faithfulness to Christ, some people will push back on you. And this morning we want to talk about apathy and how easy it is to slip into apathy when hard times come. So I want to take you back to the middle 1850s. And I want to tell you about a book that I recently read called Steal Away Home. It is the dual biography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Thomas Johnson. I had never heard of Thomas Johnson before the biography. And I will tell you, this is a great book. It's an easy book to read. And if you're interested in history or biography, I highly recommend the book. But this is a book about an ex-slave who became a friend of Charles Spurgeon. So Thomas Johnson was, was born... Uh, on a plantation in Virginia. He was unable to read and write, and after being sold multiple times, he ended up on the plantation of Arthur Lee Brent in Richmond. The Brents were excessively cruel. And after yet another beating, Thomas Johnson said, I'm out of here. I'm going to try to do my best to escape. However, before his getaway, he was forced to attend a book burning on the village green, and so he went. At the book burning, all these people were throwing books into the bonfire, and they were all books by the same author. He said, uh, whose books are they burning? He said, these are the the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon of London. Well, Spurgeon was very well known in the North and loved, known all over the world, really, but in the South, because Spurgeon spoke very strongly against slavery, Some of the people were were turning against him. A lot of the people were turning against him, and they were burning his sermons and burning his books and having nothing to do with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So Thomas Johnson said, I want to know that guy. And through an amazing twist of circumstances, he learned to read, he came to Christ, he got freed, and he said, I want to be the kind of pastor who speaks out like Charles Haddon Spurgeon did. And so there's Thomas Johnson on the left displaying his slave chains and his whip, and there's Charles Haddon Spurgeon on the right. And Johnson goes to London. He becomes fast friends with Charles Haddon Haddon Spurgeon. And by the way, Thomas Johnson was quite an individual. He he wrote a a book called 28 Years a Slave, and he ended up becoming a a missionary in, in, uh, in Africa and a tremendous leader. But uh, Thomas Johnson had a unique ministry in Charles Spurgeon's life. Thomas Johnson's ministry was to cheer up a man who was chronically depressed. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had what we would call today PTSD from an event that happened when he was a young man. And, And Spurgeon would go into long periods of depression and anxiety. Here's, here's a man who has written more words 
than the Encyclopedia Britannica contains. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he was a man who encountered lengthy bouts with depression and anxiety. And apparently there was, there was one person who could move him back to encouragement, and that was Thomas Johnson. And when Johnson and Spurgeon were together, Johnson spoke life into Spurgeon's darkness. He spoke encouragement into Spurgeon's depression. And Spurgeon would, would move from his brief, apathetic lukewarmness back into a passionate love for Christ. We need people like that. And Ezra chapter five, chapters 5 and 6 show us that there is a ministry of encouragement that moves people from apathy to action. And I want to encourage you to be that person, or if you're, if you're in a period of lukewarmness, to search out that person. So I, I want to begin with a story. Uh, 20 years after the people return to the land, they encounter a season of apathy. Ezra 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Ju Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God, that is Haggai and Zechariah, were with them, supporting them. You see what we have? We, we have a leader, Zerubbabel, who is presiding over an apathetic group, and we have prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who are moving them back into a place of action. Now, one more time, let me, let me give you the background. In 537 B.C., Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, issued an edict, and he directed the people to go back to the land of promise, their, their, their historic indigenous homelands. Well, their mission was to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And when Zerubbabel issued the call, 50,000 people showed up, and 50,000 people began to trek around the Fertile Crescent into the promised land. And when they f were on their way, they were so fired up Here's what it says in Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with joyful shouting. If you had seen those 50,000 people going around the Fertile Crescent to their homeland, they would have been joyful and excited about what was going on. This was like the Mayflower going from England to America. This is like Apollo 11 landing on the moon. This was a big historic trip, and it was very difficult. That Fertile Crescent is a thousand miles long, and yet they're going with the faith that God has done something absolutely historic. I mean, think, think about that journey. There's no, no traveler's insurance. There's no AAA that you can call if your, if your horse-drawn carriage breaks down. There's nothing like that. This is the ancient world, and it was brutal and hard and difficult, and they're joyful because they realize that history is being, is being made. So they get to, to near the land, and they're so excited because they read about the city of Jerusalem in the Bible, and they read about how the temple looked, and they go over the last crest before looking into the city of Jerusalem, and they're so excited, and they crest the last hill, and they go, ah. Oh because the city walls are torn down. That what used to be the temple is, is, is in rubble, and the people living there are dirt poor. And they think, 
Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay, but we're going to ramp up some grit, and we are going to, we're going to pre prepare to rebuild. We're going to lay the foundation for the altar. We're going to lay the foundation for, for, the, for the temple. But now comes a big problem because the Samaritans in the land, they give them a hard time, and they get them mired into an international legal dispute and they say you can't build on this property you can't build on this land we're going to prohibit you from doing this we're going to write letters we're going to issue a campaign we're going to oppose you and the work of god ground to a screeching halt not for one year not for 10 years but for 18 long years they stopped doing the daily sacrifices, which means they stopped living in a daily relationship with God. See, daily sacrifices for them is like you abiding in Christ. Daily sacrifices for them are like you reading the Word and getting into prayer. Daily sacrifices for them are like, like you walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. They stopped doing that, and they plunged into lukewarmness. They were still the people of God. They were still loved by God, but they stopped connecting with God. And the place of worship, they became preoccupied with one thing. It's a little two-letter word, by the way, and it's just the word me. My fears, my anxiety, my money, my family, my future, my well-being, my life, me, me, me. They stopped abiding in Christ and it was all about turning inward. It's, it's all about me. It's all about me. And this me-centeredness lasted for, for over a decade. So let me pause for just a, a brief insight. Apathy can easily slip into your relationship with Christ when you feel overwhelmed by life. How many times has that happened to you? That your expectation gets crushed, fear sets in, anxiety sets in. In your fear and anxiety, you worry about the future. You're worrying about the future, and so you concentrate on me, my fears my security, what's ahead of me. Now thinking about the abundant, big, powerful, majestic God, I'm thinking about me, and I'm worried about my future. It's so easy for that to take, to take place. And rather than living in the abundance of God's supernatural power, we become shrunken into a cocoon of me-centeredness. And what we know about brain science is that apathy builds grooves neurologically in the brain. God has given you the most amazing brain. Your brain is plastic. It's, it's pliable. It changes. And if you slip into apathy, you create pathways or grooves in the brain that reinforce that apathy. Apathy begets apathy. And that's not a good place to be. So back to the story. God knows our frame. He knows we're dust, and so he intervenes, and he intervenes by raising up a spiritual leader. His name is Haggai. So here's what Haggai does. He comes on the scene. 18 years of apathy, Haggai comes on the scene. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Can't you just see Haggai reaching out his hand, ready to speak? And he says, is it a time for you, yourselves? Now, he, notice as God is, is saying this, remember, it was all about me. 
And God is emphasizing that in the prophecy. Is it, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house, meaning the temple, lays in ruins? Wow, that, that was a hard that was a hard-hitting, powerful prophecy. Because these people are thinking only about me, they, they think about my security, which means my house, which means they're tuning into Fixer Upper by the Gaines, Chip and Joanna Gaines, watching every season of Fixer Upper. How could we make our house really awesome? They're on Pinterest all the time, wondering how they can make their entry hall look a little bit better. They're looking at kitchen tiles and granite countertops and trying to think how they can make that better. It's all, it's all about me. It's all about my, my stuff. It's all about my security. They're driving to Lowe's for more and more supplies, and then they go to Restoration Hardware to splurge. It's all about me and my house. And Haggai is saying, wait a second. <laughs> it's all about you, but, but it's not about the kingdom for you guys. Where, where's, your, where is your, where's your kingdom focus? That's Haggai's message. Now, um, <clears throat> Haggai says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And then he talks about why they're struggling. He says, um, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. He's talking about their crops. And when you brought it home, it, it, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lays in ruins while each of your houses busies himself with his own house. Haggai says, you, you got so preoccupied with self that I, I disciplined you. You know, loving father disciplines his kids. It's Father's Day, right? How many of you dads have disciplined genuinely out of love? Look, all dads sometimes discipline in anger, right? It happens. But how many of you dads at times ramped up great fatherhood and you disciplined out of love? Good dads do that, and a good God does that. And God did that in, in this case. Haggai saying, man, let's get back to kingdom thinking. And so now um, we go to Zechariah's message. Uh, here's Zechariah. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Well, Zechariah then goes on to point out that the fathers engaged in lack of care for widows, lack of care for orphans, and the worship of false gods. He's even more powerful in his confrontation than, Zechariah, than Haggai was. So, he continues in verse 3, Don't be like your fathers, to whom, of who, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. You know, the former prophets confronted the people, and the people stayed entrenched in their apathy and sin. And Zechariah says, Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, I will tell you that Zechariah's prophetic words came at an enormous cost because people got angry with Zechariah and they killed him. Matthew 23, 31. This is a Jesus. 
On you Pharisees will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of who? Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. We have no details about how that happened or why that happened, but I imagine Zechariah having finished his book, the 37th or 38th book of the Bible, and he's preaching out against what's going on and people are getting angrier and angrier at him, and he's on the Temple Mount, and people who are upset with him rise up and they, they beat Zechariah. Maybe they didn't intend to kill him, but they beat him and he dies. His prophetic word came at a tremendous cost. And yet, the people respond. Back to Ezra 5, verse 1. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And Zerubbabel arose and began to rebuild. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So Zechariah got killed. But they heeded the words of the, of the prophets. So here's the point. On the road to renewal, sometimes you can slip into apathy. And I believe what God will do, the pattern that we see from this chapter, is that God will raise up someone who will lovingly confront you. And we need that. That's why the, why the Bible says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Why great patience? Because sometimes people will be in denial. I'm not apathetic. How dare you talk to me about my apathy? I'm not apathetic. I'm doing fine. Great patience and instruction is needed. How many of you have ha ever had somebody confront you that way? Say, you know what, I'm, I'm seeing some things in your life that really concern me. And I, I, I just feel like I need to talk to you about it. I don't like where I see things headed. And I, and I need to mention this to you because I love you and I'm concerned about you. Look, if somebody does that, that is a really good thing. And that's what Haggai and Zechariah did. Apathetic people need others who will lovingly confront them with the word. But God does something else as well. God, God not only raises up prophets, he changes the circumstances. So we get to verse 3 of Ezra. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them. And they said this, who gave you the decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Who told you you could do that? It's been lying unfinished for 18 years. Who told you you could do this? They also asked them, what are the names of the people who are building this building? You know, we, we have a term in our culture called doxing. Some of you know what that word is. Most of you probably don't know what that word is. To dox somebody means that you use the internet to disclose the personal information about that person, like their address, what their house looks like, their personal telephone number, all of their personal information. It's out there on the internet. You're doxing somebody so they will be hassled by people. Well, that's what these guys are doing. They're, they're doxing the workers. They're saying, they've got their clipboard out. Okay, like, who are these builders? We want their names and addresses. We want their phone numbers. We want their social security numbers. We want to report them. We want to, we want to shame them on Facebook. That's what we want to do. So they're trying to intimidate the workers into stopping doing what the prophets have told them to do, and they're going to be very personal about that. 
But here's the cool thing. They're not apathetic anymore, and they're not afraid anymore. So verse 5, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until the report should reach Darius and then be answered, and then an answer be given by a letter concerning, concerning it. So they're not going to be dissuaded. They're basically saying to the people hassling them, go ahead, do your worst. We don't care. We're doing what God told us to do, and we're going to do it in his strength and in his power. And now God intervenes, and he intervenes in a really cool way. I'm not going to read the next 23 verses, but I want to give you the Cliff Notes version. Because the next 23 verses are a long series of legal letters. And that's just hard to, hard to go through. I'll give you the, here, here are the cliff notes. Tatnai, the governor, sends a report to Darius. And the report is an amazingly objective report. Uh, Tatnai uh, knows that Cyrus has made a decree. He describes the humility of the Hebrew people. He's saying that the, the construction is actually going along very well. So it's a very objective report. He's not spinning the report in a negative way. But Tatnai says, look, I want, to, I want a search to be made of the original decree to see if these guys are doing this the way it was supposed to be done. So it goes all the way around the Fertile Crescent, all the way over now to Persia. And the letter is received, and Darius makes a command. And he says, okay, I command, let's find the decree. Well, he's in Persia, the decree most likely was in Babylon. That's a long way away. So now we've now we got another letter that's going back there, but there's a branch office of the archives in Akbana, which is close to where the king is. And in the branch office, they find the decree. Now here, here's the original decree, which is the Cyrus Cylinder. A version of that apparently was found in the library at Ekbana, and they began to search the original decree, and Cyrus commanded that the temple be rebuilt. What's amazing is that besides this, there are other supporting documents. And the supporting documents are amazing. Cyrus specified the size of the temple, the materials out of which the temple should be built, how it would be financed, and how it would be furnished. So Cyrus writes a letter back in Ezra chapter 6, and he says, all right, you governors, leave the people of Israel alone. Stop hassling them. Moreover, I want you governors, get this, to pay the cost of the temple. They were choking on that big time, believe me, back in Jerusalem. Uh, moreover, once it's built, I want you to provide the animals for daily sacrifice. That means that's an ongoing expense coming out of the royal treasury. And then he get, makes it personal. He says, I want this built because I want the people of Israel to be praying to their God on my behalf. He's a polytheist, but he wants to cover his bases. He wants lots of different people praying for him. He made it very, very personal. Now comes the shocking part. This is amazing. He says, if you don't do this, I command that a pole be taken from your house. And I command that we bury one end of the pole in the ground. And then I command that you be impaled on that pole. Now, I don't want to ruin your lunch, but I want to show you what this, what this looked like. 
Here is a relief uh, drawing of people being impaled, and there is a woodcut drawing of, of being impaled. I don't want that to happen. That's not, that's not what I'm excited about. And, and, and what these governors are going is, okay, <laughs> we are going to do exactly what the king says. And it wasn't just that they would be impaled, but while they're being impaled, their house is being torn down. So it's, it's bad. And so they, they decide, okay, we're going to obey the king with all diligence, I'll say. So challenged by the prophets and encouraged by the intervention of God, the people get to work. And in just four years, the temple is finished. The house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Now, who but God could have orchestrated this? Because here's what happens. 586 BC, the first temple is destroyed. 515 BC, the second temple is completed. How many years is that? 70 years. Exactly the way Jeremiah had prophesied this in Jeremiah 25, 9 through 12, and in 29, 10. Amazing. Who but God could have made that kind of thing take place? So here, here are the people in apathy... And yet, even the people in apathy, God was sovereign over all the events so that the temple got built in 70 years. God knows if you slip into a season of apathy. He still loves you. He's still working. He's still making things happen. The challenge is, the challenge is to heed the word of the prophets and to move from apathy to action. And one of the cool things that we, we see is that um, they become very joyful because they're now celebrating the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, it, to them, was the cross for us. It was their national salvation. The cross is our, is our personal salvation. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was the feast celebrating spiritual growth. So they're getting back to salvation and spiritual growth. They're getting back to passion. Going from lukewarmness to hot, going from uh, from apathy to action. And it says, the Lord made them joyful and, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. An amazing story. And I, you know, I love it. God made them joyful. You know, the happiest being in the entire universe is God. He's happier than anybody else. He's happier than the current leader of the U.S. Open. He's happier than Tiger Woods. He's happier than the president of the most prosperous country in the world. He's a happy God. He's a joyful God. And God loves to take his happiness and joy and pour it onto you when you've repented of your lukewarmness. Now, that leads us to the main idea. Uh, the main idea is all about how apathetic people are brought back into a love relationship with God. And here's the, here's the main idea. God calls us from lukewarmness to joy in two ways. First, He raises up people who challenge us through His Word, and then He works supernaturally and miraculously behind the scenes to encourage our decision. That's the pattern that we see in Ezra 5 and 6. And that's the pattern that we see so often in our lives as well. So, so here's God ministering His Word to you through a friend. Proverbs 27, verse 6, "'Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy.'" So you've got a friend who says, I'm seeing something in your life that deeply concerns me. And I'm concerned that you're going down a path that is not good for you and your family. 
And, and, and I'll, can we talk about that, please? And you feel offended because how dare they talk to me about my life? And Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's good when that kind of thing takes place. Or here's Jesus, Revelation 3, verse 17. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy, I need nothing. They're in denial, right? Jesus you know, says, you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And so Jesus is, is wounding the church at Laodicea. They think they're doing just great. And Jesus says, you're not doing great. He wounds them. But then what he says is, uh, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so you might be rich, white garments so that you might clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness might not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. He's saying, I want you to come back to me, and I want you to spiritually connect with me in such a way that you move from apathy into, into action. So important that we do that. And then if somebody does that, it's important that we don't just, you know, j- just say, okay, I'm acting now in the power of the flesh, but we act in the power of the Spirit. That's why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea being, I need God's kingdom to break through in my life if I am going to move from apathy to action. His kingdom power is kingdom authority to do that. All right, so let's think about some takeaways, how to move from apathy to action. The first thing is start with a, a very honest assessment of where you are right now. So I want, I want to, pl- I want to pl- play the prophet for you right now. And I want to ask you the question, are you apathetic? Are you lukewarm? Are you lukewarm? Like, like right now, June of 2019, are you lukewarm? Are you there right now? So here's, here's how you can think about this. People who are lukewarm, they feel overwhelmed by the obstacles and the stresses of life. That's where they start. And then they start feeling like they can't trust God to make things better because God probably is not going to intervene in my life right now because things are so bad. And then you're, you cocoon yourself into this, this me-oriented mindset that's only wor- worried about the immediate. And then you've neglected daily disciplines of connecting with Him. And so if, if that's you, the challenge is to say, okay, I am. I'm, I'm lukewarm. I'm apathetic. God, I, I admit to you where I am. That's confession. You're confessing. You're saying the same as God would say to you. So it's important that we do a, a gut check about, about where we are. Here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is seek the help of a guide. They had Haggai and they had Zechariah. Um, two people who were willing to speak the prophetic word to them. You need a guide. In, in our New Testament terminology, that is a disciple maker. That is a spiritual coach. That is a spiritual mentor. You need somebody like that. We all need disciple makers. I've had disciple makers who are way more mature than I was. I've had disciple makers who are peer with me. And I've actually been in relationship with people who were less mature than I was, but were in a place of great wisdom, and they spoke into my life. Like the one time I'm driving with my son, who's just come back to Christ, and he says, Dad, you need to think about doing this. And he was right. I did. We need disciple makers, mentors, guides. Seek that out. Seek that out. You know, the more I do coaching for people, 
the more I, I realize that people have a particular thing in their life which makes it hard for them to go forward. If I can find out what that is and help them work through that thorny issue, it releases newfound spiritual growth. And here's a third, ap third application, third takeaway. Begin to see the supernatural in your daily experience. You know, God is always working, but sometimes we don't have the eyes to see it. So how does God work? Sometimes he does class A miracles, cl class A miracles, like a major healing, class A miracles, like a, like a stunning provision of finances when you thought you were through. Sometimes God engineers wonderful class A miracles, but not always. Sometimes God does, God does miracles which are quiet miracles like he did with Elijah. My dad one time was in a kind of a rough place financially. He was in a new job. And at the very last day of the year, he closed a deal that allowed him to get all of his income for the year and give what he had promised to give to the church. That was a big miracle in his life. But it was a quiet miracle. Quiet. It's quiet. It was something that meant something to him. Elijah had some of those quiet miracles. Sometimes what God does is he gives little crumb miracles. Okay, so... Crumb miracles don't sound like a miracle, but, but they are. Here's a crumb miracle. I'm, I'm sitting at the counter in my kitchen, and I've got one dog on one side, one dog on the other side, and they want crumbs. And so, I shouldn't, I shouldn't I'm, I'm admitting this, okay? So, sometimes I will drop a little crumb down. And what a crumb miracle is, is that God training you to see the supernatural? Because, you know, we can, we can cut God out of that and, and stop seeing it. But what God does is He gives us little pictures of the supernatural here and there so that we'll learn to see. Learn to see those things. God does that out of, out of, out of His love. So I go back to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Thomas Johnson. Spurgeon, great man who was depressed. In his depression, he would go toward apathy. Thomas Johnson, ex-slave. Johnson was used by God to encourage Spurgeon. You be the Thomas Johnson to Charles Spurgeon. Let's stand for a closing prayer.